From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called Never Was a Story of More Woe Than This. It's about a drama that has not changed in 400 years, the one that begins when Juliet Capulet kisses one particular boy at a party. We sometimes think that youth and love don't change, and that's what this podcast explores, how the world around Romeo and Juliet has shifted and the impact those shifts have had on the words Shakespeare first wrote down somewhere between 1591 and 1595. Our narrator is Rebecca Shear. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Whether or not that was true when Shakespeare wrote it, for the past 400 years or so, few tales have been as enduring for more than three centuries on stage, and then, once it was possible, over and over again on the screen. It is my lady. Oh, that she knew she were. Oh, Romeo, Romeo. Wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father, and refuse thy name. What's Montague? It is not hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Romeo, doff thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. <laughs> Swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon that monthly changes in a circled orb, unless that thy love prove likewise variable. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. Romeo and Juliet captured and has continued to articulate truths about young love. When you're young, you are so passionate about everything. You never love anything the way you love something when you're 14. Have not saints' lips and holy palmers too? Exaltation and the hormones raging in their bodies. I mean, that comes across very clearly in the play. And in this state, she gallops night by night through lovers' brains, and then they dream on love. The belief that young love ought to triumph over old parents and the patriarchal order. I think that doesn't change. Speed and haste makes the relationship between the lovers very intense. Marrying someone less than 24 hours after meeting them, and then killing yourself over them two days later, not a healthy relationship. Poison, I see, hath been his timeless end. Oh, drunk call and left no friendly drop to help me after. The problem of Juliet's age at barely 14. Spread thy close curtain, love performing night, that runaway's eyes may wink and Romeo leap to these arms untalked of and unseen. The idea of masculinity and femininity that are represented by Romeo and Juliet. As if that name shot from the deadly level of a gun did murder her. Is that name's cursed and murdered her kinsmen. Violence and being constantly surrounded by violence is something that is very much a part of our world and resonates very clearly for us when we watch Romeo and Juliet. Peace, peace. I hate the word. As I hate hell, all Montagues. And I think it captures that beautifully.
1922 feature article about Romeo and Juliet in the New York Times spoke of Shakespeare's ageless lines. And the best we can tell, Romeo and Juliet has been performed, at least for the past 100 years, much as Shakespeare intended. It's impossible to know, of course, how much of the original play made it into the first folio or the various quarto editions of Shakespeare's works. But simply because they were written down, the best-known, most quotable lines, the major plot points, and the story of Romeo and Juliet have not changed. The world around them, however, has. And those changes have, in turn, changed perceptions of Romeo and Juliet. Attitudes about its language, ideas about its expressions of passion and sexuality, beliefs about whether what happens in the play is morally right or wrong, those things have changed. Sometimes they've changed a lot. So much so that they have drastically altered the play, taking it far from anything Shakespeare ever wrote. There's a wonderful sequence in the 1998 movie Shakespeare in Love that tries to show what the first ever performance of Romeo and Juliet might have been like. It's easy enough to fool yourself into thinking that this is precisely what it was like to go to the theater in Shakespeare's time. Libby Apple is the former director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. We do have a sense of what the Elizabethan audience was like and what Elizabethan life was like for many reports of the day. And clearly it was rowdy, it's raucous, a little raunchy. I I would even go so far as to say it was probably loud. It is a large audience who comes with a kind of jolly spirit feeling, gosh, this is going to be a great event. I'm going to have fun. Holds. Both alike. In dignity. In fair Verona, where we lay our sea. We don't know whether Shakespeare wrote with an eye toward posterity, and of course he had no idea whether his work would last all these years. What's reasonable to say is that because he was writing at a particular time, the work he produced complied with that era's customs and standards. Charles Forker is Emeritus Professor of English at Indiana University. Shakespeare doesn't worry about sexual explicitness in language at all, and most Elizabethans didn't. I'll cut off their heads. The heads of the maids? Aye, the heads of the maids. All their maiden heads, take it in what sense I will. The Elizabethan production would certainly have been more explicit in language and in bodiness. Though his face be better than any man's, yet his leg excels all men's, and for a hand, foot, and a body, though... They be not be talked on, yet are they past compare? The nurse talks about Juliet falling backwards when she's a little older. Ah, will fall backwards when thou comest to age, wilt thou not, Jewel? <laughs> Puns on die and come, for instance, which are used several times in this play, do have sexual overtones, which Elizabethans were apparently aware of. But for all the play's dirty puns, sexual wordplay, and Renaissance celebration of physicality and physical beauty, It was being performed at a time with a strong moral code. The Elizabethans were not as puritanical linguistically, but they were more puritanical in terms of what people were allowed to actually do in real life. Partly it's because of the the higher evaluation of virginity that Elizabethans had. You have to remember that the Elizabethan age still had a lot of religious and moral holdovers from the Middle Ages. 
Is that why Romeo and Juliet don't sleep together until they're married? No. You could be betrothed and have sex with your partner before the actual marriage service, because the betrothal was almost as important as the marriage service itself. As time passed, as history moved further and further away from the Elizabethan era, attitudes on that, and much more, shifted radically back and forth. Shakespeare's golden era was followed by grim suppression of theater by the Puritans, which was then followed by the Restoration in 1660 and a return to body comedy. Anne Russell is an associate professor at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario, Canada. Comedy from the 1670s and 80s is extremely explicit, full of sexual jokes, and those plays remain very popular until around the 1720s or so, when we start to see them appearing less often in the repertoire. But by the 1740s, you simply could not find those plays anymore in the English-speaking world. They either ceased being presented or they were revised or adapted. As for Romeo and Juliet, there had been a revival of the play in the late 1600s. But not too long after that, a playwright named Thomas Otway wrote a new work with two young lovers named Marius and Lavinia. That play borrowed liberally from Shakespeare, to the point where Lavinia, on her balcony, says, O Marius, Marius, wherefore art thou Marius? But it became so popular that it was nearly impossible to find a production of Romeo and Juliet for the next 85 years. And it's hard to say how audiences responded to Romeo and Juliet when they did see it again, because, Professor Russell says, what they saw was quite different from what Shakespeare wrote. Not until late in the 19th century was there a real restoration of Shakespeare's script of Romeo and Juliet. What people saw instead, in 1750 and, importantly, for about 100 years after, was a variation of the play adapted by a famous actor named David Garrick. Garrick changed Romeo and Juliet in many ways. For one thing, he turned Romeo into a hero, principally because Garrick was going to be playing Romeo. You would not have heard this line in Garrick's Romeo and Juliet. Thou a man, thy form cries out, thou art. Thy tears are womanish. Tybalt, who died in Shakespeare's original play, survived in Garrick's version. Garrick tacked on a glorious funeral procession. Garrick also made significant concessions to the moral attitudes of his time. He took out much of the sexual discussion and banter and punning. For the same reason, he made an important change to Juliet. Thou knowest my daughter's of a pretty age. Maybe I can tell her age until now. She's not 14. Juliet is um, very precocious for her age, and her awareness of sexuality is also seen as a problem. That is something Garrick knew his audience would never stand for. As a result, Professor Russell says... He changed Juliet's age to 18 from 14. Tell me, daughter Juliet, how stands your disposition to be married? It is an honor that I dream not of. Because who would have a problem with an 18-year-old falling in love? Art thou not Romeo and a Montague? Garrick's adaptation was monumental, and it lasted. His characterizations were the ones audiences preferred, especially as time passed into the Victorian era. Juliet's seen as a highly romantic but 
not erotic or ero uh, not a figure who's aware of eroticism. Romeo is idealized to be somewhat more heroic and less scatterbrained than he is in the play. And it's their chaste romance that takes center stage. Empresarios and theater managers and indeed actresses were really aware of how any criticism for sexual reasons could be the end of a career. And so any reference to explicit sexuality really had to be suppressed. In the rare instances where Juliet's sexual precocity was evident during this period, it was put down to her being a hot-blooded Italian. In the same way, Victorian productions downplayed the violent swordplay and the sexual wordplay. For the bawdy hand of the dial is now upon the prick of noon. <laughs> Nobody would use the word prick in that way in a Victorian in a Victorian production. <laughs> Elizabethans are perfectly happy with using the word prick to mean what it, what it obviously does mean. Queen Victoria died in 1901. Victorian attitudes, however, appeared to have lived on afterwards, at least in the production of Romeo and Juliet. Early 20th century audiences liked their Juliet to be a charming, simple girl. She might be cool, playful, or sad, but she was never lustful, sultry, or wanton. Audiences frowned on nurses who dove too deeply into low comedy. They preferred the balcony scene to the sword fights, and they liked the scenery to be opulent. Settings and costumes never varied. It is particularly significant that the play remained this way during this time. The 20 years that preceded the Great Depression were one of the most artistically fertile moments of the 20th century. This was a time when Stravinsky, Picasso, George Balanchine, Matisse, Nijinsky, Coco Chanel and others were collaborating to produce works pulsing with a primitive sexual energy that were embraced by audiences worldwide. Those libertine tendencies do not appear to have rubbed off on producers of Romeo and Juliet. Theaters offered fairly traditional productions of Shakespeare's tragedy, when they performed Shakespeare at all. Audiences wanted childlike, elfish, and winsome Juliets, and heedless and romantic Romeos who demonstrated facility of speech. Joe Calarco, a theater director whose all-male adaptation of the play is very popular today on college campuses, sums up Romeo and Juliet productions of that era this way. Very cold and very polite and very constipated and with no passion. Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face. Else would a maiden blush betray my cheek for that which thou hast heard me speak tonight. This is the version of Romeo and Juliet captured on film in 1936. The same year that Orson Welles was producing a voodoo Macbeth set in the steaming Caribbean, director George Cukor chose instead to create a Romeo and Juliet as cold and polite as they come. It's all there. The traditional costumes, the opulent sets, and Juliet in the person of Norma Shearer looking to be somewhere in her early 30s. Dost thou love me? I know thou wilt say I, and I will take thy word. Yet if thou swearest thou mayest prove false, and Romeo? Well, here's an assessment from Michael Kahn, artistic director of the Shakespeare Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. When, when Leslie Howard played Romeo in the movie, too old, too pale, and about as passionate as a sieve. You have dancing shoes with nimble soles. I have a soul of lead, so stakes me to the ground I cannot move. You are alive. 
In theater reviews over the next 30 years, and in allusions to Romeo and Juliet in the popular press, this is the version of the play that you find, until the ice finally cracked in 1968. It is my lady. Oh, it is my love. This film version of the play, directed by Franco Zeffirelli, had a profound effect on a generation. Here, for example, is Linda Charnas, a professor of English at Indiana University, Bloomington. My first experience of Shakespeare was uh, Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, um, after which I wept for two days. The Zeffirelli film came out at the height of the 1960s sexual revolution. My bounty is as boundless as the sea. My love is deep. The more I give to thee, the more I... In keeping with the times, Romeo and Juliet, who look almost age-appropriate in the film, are actually seen naked, in bed, in Act 3. Will that be gone? It is not yet near day. The era of the Zeffirelli film was important for another reason, too. Sexuality wasn't the only part of life going through a radical upheaval in 1968. In the late 60s, schools were overhauling their curricula, trying to make learning more relevant. As part of that movement, the year after the Zeffirelli film came out, a man named Daniel Fader wrote a volume called Hooked on Books. Peggy O'Brien is director of the Folgers Education Program. The premise of the book was that students would have more energy and enthusiasm for things that they wanted to read than things that they should read. And if you want a student to, to get into the habit of reading, you should start with something that's interesting to them. Based on that idea, she says Fader made a strategic choice in the way he decided to target the study of Shakespeare. The notion that the plot of West Side Story was in fact the plot of Romeo and Juliet and West Side Story was about gangs and it was contemporary. Both plays were also about teenagers. Another natural fit if you wanted literature to seem interesting to teenagers. Fader's book gained wide acceptance, and for the next 20 years, O'Brien says... We're all out there teaching West Side Story and Romeo and Juliet. That trend ended in the early 90s, O'Brien said, when kids started to wonder... Who are the Jets, and who cares about them? I mean, so the fact is that they had an easier time getting to Romeo and Juliet than they did understanding West Side Story. But while schools dropped West Side Story, they stuck with Romeo and Juliet. According to Lindsay Rao Heiveld, assistant professor of English at Luther College in Iowa, Romeo and Juliet today is the most taught Shakespeare play in American high schools. It's sort of become the default ninth grade play. And while she says high school teachers in the main are not engaging the sexual jokes or the overt descriptions of sexual desire in the play, can you imagine what a room full of 14-year-olds would do with that? Having Romeo and Juliet in nearly every high school classroom creates a convenient entree to the play once students are in college. That process is also assisted by Hollywood, but for a different reason than an earlier generation. For Shakespeareans her age, Professor Rao Heiveld says the Zeffirelli film means nothing. Instead, she says... The Baz Luhrmann movie is huge. It's huge. <laughs> well, let me be taken. Let me be put to death. I have more care to stay than will to go. Come death and welcome. Juliet wills it so. How is my soul? Let's talk. It is not day. For people my age, seeing that movie 
was just a really powerful introduction to Shakespeare um, and to Romeo and Juliet specifically. The 1996 film starring Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio was marketed heavily to young people with an overt desire to make Romeo and Juliet new and cool and topical. They made these promotional and I think collectible postcards that came out in magazines like Seventeen or YM. It's Although I joy in it, I have no joy of this contract tonight. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden. I had this postcard that I had ripped out of Seventeen magazine that had a picture of Juliet on her balcony. And underneath in this lovely scratchy script, it said, my only love sprung from my only hate. And I put it up in my locker. The film now has a distinctly 90s vibe to it. Still, there is enough about it that still resonates with the college students she teaches. Their discussions of the play reveal important changes in popular conception. Here is one example. According to Indiana University professor Charles Forker, The eroticism in Romeo and Juliet, and there's a great deal of it, has to be conveyed through the language rather than through the physical actions. The, the, the moments of actual kissing or embracing and so forth are rather rather rare in the play. But as Lindsay Rao Heiveld students might say, that totally rings true for today's college and high school students. The idea that Romeo and Juliet is a play where much of the erotic action takes place through language rather than through physical action is something I think that young audiences are really comfortable with. Remember, this is a generation that sexts to convey sexual action, often without accompanying physical action, thanks to cell phones and Snapchat and all of that. They are doing something similar themselves. She speaks, yet she says nothing. What of that? Her eye discourses. I will answer it. Another important element for today's young people, producers and audiences are no longer squeamish about the play's sexual content. As a result, teens see Juliet in a light they can relate to, that is, as a young woman owning her sexuality. That speech in Act 3, Scene 2, where Juliet is waiting for Romeo to come to her chamber that night so that they can consummate their relationship, and actively voices her desire to have sex with him in in pretty explicit terms. Come, gentle knight. Come, loving black-browed knight, give me my Romeo. And when I shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars. And It resounds really well with young women today who also feel invested in their own sexual pleasure. Juliet isn't imagining what a great time Romeo's going to have with her. She's imagining what a great time she is going to have. Oh, I have bought the mansion of a love but not possessed it. And though I am sold, not yet enjoyed. That moment is part of something bigger that happens in the play with Juliet that I think young women today really do connect with. And that is the way in which she is actively a part of that romantic relationship from the beginning. Um, From the minute she and Romeo meet, it's mutual. That mutuality plays hand in hand with another reflection today's young people have when they watch Romeo and Juliet. The evolving ideas of what makes someone masculine and what makes them feminine 
As Charles Forker points out, It is Juliet who is the more manly of the two characters in some respects. She has to have more courage than Romeo does, in a way. Tell me not, Father, that thou hearest of this, unless thou tell me how I may prevent it. Frames me past the compass of my wits. If in thy wisdom thou canst give no help, do thou recall my resolution wise. And with this, I'll help it presently. Hold on. Be not so long to speak. I long to die. Meanwhile, he says, Romeo rolls around on the floor and cries like a girl. This disruption of traditional sex roles is one of the elements of the play that was chopped out by Garrick and stayed out for years. According to Wilfrid Laurier University's Anne Russell, Passion and impetuousness uh, were devalued and were seen as not appropriate for the correctly masculine man. And so a character like Romeo, who is changeable, variable, emotional, passionate, becomes less easy to idealize in a culture that wants its men strong and silent. The Victorians had one fairly startling solution to this problem. For a period, beginning in the 1830s, it was not uncommon for the role of Romeo to be played by a woman. There were a few women actors who played men's roles regularly in the 1840s to the 70s or even the 90s. Just as there are men in Hollywood today who won't play a gay character, she says that in the 19th century, there were actors who, when it came to playing Romeo and also Hamlet, expressed anxiety and discomfort about having to play those roles and certain scenes in those roles in particular. While audiences in past generations had a problem with this level of male passion, Lindsay Rao Heiveld says, Masculinity today has more room for extreme emotion than maybe it used to. She saw the Boz Lerman Romeo and Juliet when she was Juliet's age, 14, and she remembers thinking, You have a, a young Romeo, a very, in some ways, feminine-looking Romeo, who spent the entire movie crying. Then banish it as death term, Calling death banish it. Thou cuts my head off with a golden axe and smiles upon the stroke that murders me. Oh, He's crying for 75% of that movie. And at no point do I think 14-year-old me at least thought he's, he's not man enough. As if that name shot from the deadly level of a gun did murder her. Is that name's cursed and murdered her kinsman? And there's an odd parallel here, Professor Rao Heiveld says, a parallel between the issues of sex roles, sexuality, and of suicide, another important element of the play. For many young people today, she says the suicide part of the play just seems wrong. But not for all. And that's where the parallel comes in. There are a lot of taboo romantic relationships that are not as taboo as they used to be. It's a lot less likely for someone to be shunned by their family if they marry someone of another race, another religion, or another political affiliation. But the one taboo love in our culture that is still or, or often is very forbidden is for gay and lesbian kids. And um, in the last several years especially, there's been a spate of very widely publicized suicides by young gay youth. The story of thwarted love, especially tragically when it ends in suicide, is one that is largely a gay story in the United States. When young people watch Romeo and Juliet today, she says, That LGBT narrative is always echoing for us, even in the midst of that archetypally 
straight love story. There are other unique levels of understanding that today's young people bring to Romeo and Juliet. We're a generation that grew up around guns. The Baz Luhrmann film version of the play substituted guns for swords with devastating impact. The presence of guns and the potential that they suggest, especially for young people, um, was really powerful, upsetting, I think. Turn thee benvolio and look upon thy death. I do but keep the peace. Put up thy sword. Or manage to part these men with me. Peace. Peace. I hate the word, as I hate hell, all Montagues, and thee. Bang, bang! Bang, bang! Bang! Columbine happened very shortly after the movie came out, but Columbine isn't a single event. It's part of a chain and a network of gun violence that has characterized the youth of this upcoming generation in America. She also says of this generation that has never seen a time without AIDS that they bring another unique perspective to this 400-year-old story. In previous generations, um, it was possible to read Romeo and Juliet as this story of idyllic, innocent love that wakes up to reality. And I don't think we read Romeo and Juliet like that because we never had an age of innocence. That really shapes the way we see the play. We see them as young people who are always tethered by their consequences, by the consequences of their actions. Over the past 400 years, our opinions have changed about what Romeo and Juliet is principally about, why and whether it's relevant, and how we like it to be performed. What's unlikely to change, though, is this. Our opinions will continue to change because we will continue to watch and love this play. And there are so many reasons why. The language conveys the tremendous sense of adolescent excitement, of richness, of exaltation. My heart's dear love. That kind of excitement and impatience, anticipation, that sexual longing. That is timeless, and I don't think teenagers in the 16th century are any different than, than teenagers right now. You also have characters constantly talking about wanting to control time, and I think that's such a human experience. You would begin your relationship on the bus to school in the morning in junior high, by lunch, you would be Facebook official. And by the end of the school day, it would, it would have burned out like gunpowder. It's probably safe to say that for as long as there are young people and as long as they continue to fall in love, we will continue to watch and think and talk about Romeo and Juliet. Never Was a Story of More Woe Than This was written and produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We have help gathering material for the Shakespeare Unlimited podcast series from Esther French. We also had help from Claire Sponsler, chair of the English department at the University of Iowa. Our narrator was Rebecca Shear. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, 
the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.